If you were with us uh, last Sunday, you know that we've begun a new sermon series called New Year, New You, uh, Transformation, Not Just Resolution. Many of us make New Year's resolutions, and after a few weeks, we tend to fail to do them. So we're really not looking for resolutions. We're actually looking for transformation, knowing that if we will do the kind of spiritual practices or the spiritual habits that Jesus did, we will ultimately be transformed. Did you know that we live most of our life out of habit? This is true. Scientists have uh, studied the brain and they noticed that when we're operating out of habit, there's a different part of our brain that's, that's at work. It's the basal ganglia that's actually at work. But when we have to make big decisions, we use our prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of our brain, and it, that requires more effort. And so our brain likes to rest. It likes to go onto autopilot or cruise control. So it'd rather not have to mobilize the prefrontal cortex unless absolutely necessary. And so we tend to live our life out of habits. We tend to get into certain routines. For instance, brushing our teeth. Brushing our teeth is a very good habit. It's not something that we naturally learn to do. Our parents have to teach us to brush our teeth. I remember my parents were very insistent that before I went to bed, I had to brush my teeth, uh, not only before I went to bed, but also after I ate breakfast. Before I went to school, I had to brush my teeth. And after brushing my teeth in the morning and in the evening, over and over and over and over again, it became a natural habit that it's a part of my routine. However, flossing seemed optional as a kid. I wasn't sure about that, you know, we didn't insist on that in my home. So when I graduated from college, you know, I began to work as a consultant for Pricewaterhouse in Dallas and I went to a dentist and he told me, you know, that I had some uh, gingivitis. I actually had some gum disease working there and he said, you've got to start flossing every day. And I was like, every day? I thought once a week was good, right? But every day. So I bought some floss and I began to build that routine of right before I went to bed, I would brush my teeth and I would floss. And I've been doing it day after day after day, year after year after year. Now, if I run out of floss, like I did this week, I will go searching the house for floss because I don't want to go to bed without flossing my teeth. I don't want gingivitis to come back, right? I got to make sure I floss my teeth. That's how we live our lives. It's out of habit, out of routine. Well, if you read the gospels closely, the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, you'll see that Jesus invites his disciples to come and follow me. And as they begin to follow Jesus, you notice that there's certain habits, certain spiritual practices that Jesus does. And, and these disciples follow Jesus for three years in his active ministry. And as they follow him, they notice that there are certain things that he, he does a lot of. In fact, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus was in the habit of meditating on Scripture. We know this because he had so much of the Scripture memorized. And we looked at Psalm 1 where we're told that, well, that the wise man meditates on God's word both day and night. We talked about the fact that the Hebrew word for meditate there is Hagah. Hagah means to meditate. It means to muse. But it also means to murmur. And so what people would do in ancient times, because most people didn't have their own copy of the Bible, because the Bible was written, handwritten in scrolls, and so only one synagogue or one church would actually have a, a scroll usually, unless you're really wealthy and you happen to have your own copies of the scrolls, most people would, would learn the Bible by hearing it read, you know? And as we think about the life of Jesus, we know that he was a man who was, well, he knew the word of God very well. We see this in Matthew 4, when Jesus is out in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting and praying, right before he launches his ministry, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And you'll remember that in the three temptations that Satan brings, every time Jesus resists Satan's temptation with a quoting of the word of God, he uses the scripture to resist the temptations of Satan. We also will see in the Gospels that when Jesus wants to correct or rebuke the Pharisees, the spiritual experts of his day, he would often quote the scriptures to them. Now, Jesus was the son of a carpenter, not a wealthy man. 
very few carpenters would have had their own scrolls. In fact, probably none of them had their own scrolls because they were so, so very, very expensive. So how is it that Jesus had it so well memorized? Where did he hear the word of God? Well, most likely he heard it in the synagogue, in church, on the Sabbath. He was in the habit of, of going because his parents helped make that habit, made worship, weekly worship, a habit in his life. In fact, we know that his parents were not only committed to him going to the local synagogue in Nazareth, but we also know that he was, they were committed to well, going to Jerusalem at least once a year for the festival, the Feast of Passover. You see, some people would say, well, Jesus is the Son of God, and so, you know, as God incarnate, he already had the whole Bible memorized because he inspired it, right? Yes, but when baby Jesus was born, there's no record that baby Jesus came out of the womb quoting the Bible to Mary or Joseph. If he had, they would have written that down because that would have been amazing, right? But we do have a story about Jesus when he was very young, at the age of 12, when he goes to the temple. So I'd like to look at that if we can. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2. We just read from chapter 4. Luke chapter 2. If you could turn there in your red pew Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And uh, we will look at, beginning with verse 41, Luke chapter 2. Now his parents, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased in favor and wisdom with God and man. How did Jesus increase in favor with God and man? It was through worship. It was by going once a year at least to, the, to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. In fact, that was a 91-mile journey that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had to go on from Nazareth all the way to Jerusalem. They would have had to travel a couple of days to make that journey, whether it be by donkey or foot or camel or wagon. Yes, they made a very concerted effort to make sure that their young son, Jesus, was going to be in the temple to celebrate the Passover feast in Jerusalem, but not just once a year. They made a very concerted effort that Jesus would be with them in the Sabbath, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. For Matt read just a moment ago in Luke 4, verse 16, it says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This custom, this habit of worship was something that was instilled in Jesus in a very young age so that he might hear the word of God proclaimed, murmur it to himself, memorize it so that he might be equipped to do God's work as he grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor 
with God and man. Yes, Mary and Joseph made a very concerted effort to make sure that their little boy, Jesus, would be in worship on the Sabbath. How much of an effort are we willing to make sure that our children are in worship every Sunday so that they might grow in the wisdom of stature in God, with God and man? Did you know that um, according to uh, the Pew Research Forum, 7% uh, that worship attendance over the last decade has gone down by 7%. Gallup, which is another survey company, uh, did a survey of Americans, and they found that only 38% of Americans say that they attend worship every week. But there was another study done by Outreach Magazine where they actually looked at the worship attendance of churches, and they found that actually only 20% of people actually go to worship every week. 38% may say they go to worship every week, but the stats say, no, it's 20%. We kind of have this halo effect when we think we're better than we are, right? We think, oh, yeah, I'm usually in worship on Sundays, but that's not the case. One of the things that I love about our church is that we're committed to practicing parenting in the pew because we believe that children need to learn how to worship by, well, by mimicking us, by being with us. And that's why, you know, if a child is in kindergarten or older, we insist that they join us in worship. Of course, if you have a preschooler or an infant, we've got a nursery and we've got Critterland, which is a great place for nursery worship or for uh, preschool worship. But once they become of age, we want them to join us because children learn not so much by what we say, but by what we do. Faith is more caught than taught, as Murray often likes to say. So how can we make sure that we are imparting a passion for worship among our children today? Well, I think John Piper, who is a well-written Christian author, he's a pastor in Minnesota, says it very well when he writes these words. John Piper writes, the first and most important job of a parent is to fall in love with the worship of God If you go to church out of duty, feel forced to, or have any reason other than a love for being there, your kids will know. They will hate it just like you do. You cannot impart what you do not possess. You want your children to catch authentic worship. Authentic, heartfelt worship is the most valuable thing in human experience. You cannot calculate the cumulative effect of 650 worship services spent with mom and dad between the ages of four and 17, in authentic communion with God and his people. John Piper gets it right. We can't fake it. If we want kids to catch our faith, then we've got to to demonstrate a, a heartfelt passion for worship. And I know there's a lot of different reasons why worship attendance is down in our country. It's gone down by 7% and why only 38% of Christians say they worship, really only 20% actually do it. There's a lot of different reasons. You know, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, uh, people didn't work on Sundays. There were these blue laws, but nowadays a lot of people have to work on Sundays and so that keeps them from coming to worship. When I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, there were no sports leagues that played on Sundays, but a lot of sports be- leagues play on Sunday. But the biggest reason I think that worship attendance is declining is because the largest generation in our country, the millennials, well, they're not coming to worship. Many of the children who were born between 1981 and 1996, which kind of defines that generation, they left worship after high school and they have yet to come back. What can we do to make sure the next generation has a passion for worship, that when they get out of high school, they continue to worship God with a fervor, with a passion? How can we make sure that we have this kind of authentic, heartfelt worship that John Piper writes about? I believe the answer is found in Psalm 150. 
our Old Testament text this morning. Psalm 150, it may be found on page 668 of your Red Pew Bible. Psalm 150, please turn there in your Red Pew Bibles with me. But before I read God's word, Psalm 150 on page 668, uh, please join me in asking God to continue to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired the Psalter to put pen to paper so that we might have this beautiful psalm, this song of praise at the end of the hymn book of the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for these prayers that guide us and lead us today. We pray, O Lord, that as we read this psalm, Lord, that you might speak to us. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Psalm 150, beginning with verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was 1945, World War II had just ended, and Joe DiMaggio, who was technically still enlisted in the Army, decided to slip away to go to a Yankees game, and he wanted to take Joe Jr., his son, to a a Yankees game, and so he went incognito, and and as the game went on, it became pretty lopsided. The Boston Red Sox, for once, were actually beating the Yankees by a pretty large margin, and so people in their stands started to mill around and talk among themselves, and many started to notice that there's Joe DiMaggio, the great center fielder for the Yankees, and oh, how they missed Joe DiMaggio, and so some of them started chanting, Joe, Joe DiMaggio, Joe, Joe DiMaggio, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. Before you knew it, the whole entire stadium was yelling, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. At this point, four-year-old Joe Jr. looked up at his dad and said, look, Daddy, how many people love me? (laughs) Now, we laugh about that, but how often can we be like children thinking that it's all about us, right? I mean, that's what our consumerist culture tells us, that you can have it your way, like Burger King likes to say, that it's really all about what you want, and we will provide that for you. And sometimes we can take the same consumerist attitude towards worship if we're not careful. Psalm 150 is a beautiful way to end the Psalter. As we saw last week in Psalm 1 at the very beginning of the Psalms, we were told that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates day and night. As we meditate on the word of God, as we read God's word both day and night, we will see all that God has done for us. And the only appropriate response to to God's amazing acts is to say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Psalm 150 is a, a wonderful way to end this Psalter because as we read about God's faithfulness, it leads us to praise. And Psalm 150 answers three simple questions. Who are we to praise? Why are we to praise? And how are we to praise? Who are we to praise? 
Verse, look at verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Notice that it doesn't say praise the choir, although the choir sounds great and they look good in their robes. It doesn't say praise the choir. It doesn't even say praise the preacher, even if he's okay. But you know what? It does say praise the Lord. In fact, all worship is unto God. God is the audience. We're all the performers on Sunday morning. And so we shouldn't come to worship and say, well, how did I feel or what did I get out of worship? Rather, what are we giving to worship? Did we give God our best? Who are we to worship? We're to worship Lord and only the Lord. As we read in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before him. Worship is the one time during the week when we gather corporately to remind us that all praise and all glory should go to God and, and God alone. Yes, we are called to worship the Lord. But why exactly? Look at verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise God for his mighty deeds as we turn our hearts and minds towards God. In fact, that's the first step to authentic worship is to turn our hearts and minds not towards ourselves or towards our neighbor, but only to God. As we focus our hearts and minds on God, we can't help but recognize all that God has already done for us. I love love what Robbie Castleman says in her best-selling book, Parenting in the Pew, which is, as I mentioned earlier, something we're committed to doing, making sure that our children worship with us so they get into the habit of worship. So then when we go off to college, they can continue to worship God because they've been doing it since they were five years old. Yes, also, as we continue to read Robbie Castleman's book, she points out that preparation for worship actually begins on Saturday night. Before we go to bed, you know, we should help get our kids ready by, by picking out what they're going to wear if, they're, if they need that help. Uh, teenagers don't need that help, but younger kids do. And as we pick out what they're going to wear, we, we, we have a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking God so that we might come with great expectation, knowing that as God says, or as Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 20, on the front of your bulletin, you can read, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Can you read this, these words with me on the front of your bulletin? Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We should come with a sense of anticipation that we're not just going to worship God, but he's actually, Jesus Christ is going to be with us because as two or more gathered together in his name, as the body of Christ turns our hearts and minds towards Christ, his presence is made known to us. It's the first step to authentic worship is to turn all our hearts and minds towards God, but also to have that anticipation that as we do so together, Jesus makes himself known to us. As you can see this morning, we're going to be celebrating communion in a moment. If you continue to read the Gospel of Luke, you'll see in the very last chapter of Luke 24, there are two people on the way to Emmaus and they actually encounter the risen Jesus, but they don't initially recognize him. And they're very distraught and upset because Jesus has been crucified and they haven't seen the risen Jesus, but they've heard he's risen and they're very confused. And so the risen Jesus takes these two disciples through an incredible Bible study, helping them see how the scriptures had to be fulfilled, that yes, he must suffer and die, the Messiah must suffer and die. And then they invite the risen Jesus, who they still don't recognize, to join them for a meal. And notice in Luke 24 that it's at the breaking of the bread that their eyes are open and they recognize Jesus. It's when we come to this table that Christ's presence is made known to us. It's when we come together as one body in Christ's name that his presence is made known to us as we all turn our hearts and minds towards him and him alone and we thank God, thank him for all that he's already done for us. For Jesus, who was without sin, became sin for us so that our sins 
might be reconciled so that he might pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross and our sins might be atoned for and we might be reconciled to God once and for all. As Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. And so we gather every Sunday to celebrate what Jesus did on a Friday and to celebrate on that first Easter Sunday, he rose again conquering both sin and death and the people of God have been gathering on Sunday ever since to say hallelujah, praise the Lord for all that he's done for us, amen? Now I know we're Presbyterians and we're kind of known as like the frozen chosen, we're not really demonstrative in worship, you know, it's kind of not our way, but it feels really good to say hallelujah out loud with a lot of people. I just did it a couple of times. So I want you to join me, okay? So on the count of three, we're gonna say hallelujah. And before we say it, I wanna point out that's the very last word of the Psalter. Hallelujah, that's the Hebrew for praise the Lord. And it's actually kind of two words together. Hallelujah means praise. In fact, every time you read the word praise in Psalm 150, it's in the imperative, it's a verb, it's a command. It's not like a suggestion. He's actually saying, do this, do this, because it's good for our souls to praise the Lord. Hallelujah is praise, you praise, Actually, it'd be you all praise, like we say in West Texas, second person, uh, plural imperative. You all praise. But then it's Yah, which is short for Yahweh, the proper name of the Lord. So when you hear hallelujah, that means praise the Lord in Hebrew. So let's give God one big hallelujah on the count of three. One, two, three. Hallelujah! Doesn't that feel awesome? Doesn't that feel great? God is so good. We have so much to thank God for. How much more should we gather together as one body to remember that we have all been so blessed that all that we have and all that we are is ultimately a gift from God. And even though we're all sinners, fallen, broken people who left our own are prone to wander from God, as the old hymn says, God doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he becomes one of us. He humbled himself, became a baby in a lowly manger, and he grew up among us and he, and he grew in stature and wisdom among God and men as he came to corporate worship. It was a habit of Jesus' life from the very beginning to gather, to come and gather around God's word, to hear God's word so that he might murmur it, memorize it, and live it out as the perfect demonstration of who God is calling us to be. Yes, Psalm 150 tells us who we're to praise. We're to praise the Lord. Specifically, we're to praise Jesus on this side of Easter Sunday. We're to praise the Lord, we're to praise Jesus. Why? Because of what he's done for us, because he saved us, because he paid the ultimate price, because he loves us and he alone is worthy of our praise. But Psalm 150 also instructs us on how we are to praise God exactly. Notice all the different instruments that are mentioned in Psalm 150. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sound cymbals, sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. These are very different instruments that make a very different sound. And the fact is that, well, God can be worshiped in many different ways with different styles of music. And one of the things I love about our church is that we're committed to, to worshiping God in different styles. We've got the wonderful gospel service at 8.30 where Chuck helps lead us and he did a great job this morning along with Norman and Matt. It was powerful. And then we've got the contemporary service downstairs happening right now where they're using guitars and singing some of the more contemporary praise songs. And of course, we're here in the sanctuary with our choir and our organ. All of these are wonderful ways to praise God. And I don't know about you, but as I've been involved with different missions around the globe and I've had opportunities to worship with different congregations around the globe and I've been able to witness and participate in different styles of worship, I've grown 
and my passion for worship and my knowledge of worship and the ways that God can be glorified. As we offer these three styles so that we might all grow, be more robust in our worship of God today and so that your neighbor has no excuse for not coming here. Right? If you ask them to come to worship, man, you've got to come to First Presence. and say, well, I only like traditional worship. I say, well, I got that at 11. Well, so I only like praise me. We got that downstairs at 1105. I only like gospel music. We got that at 830. I mean, there is no excuse. I mean, if there's reggae or something, we don't have that, but, you know, nobody in Amarillo does, right? So, but yeah, what an opportunity we have to, to worship God because there's so many different styles and ways that are faithful as long as our worship is centered on God and, and God alone. If we come with that thankful heart to praise God, and we come with that sense of anticipation, knowing that as Jesus tells us, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is here. He is here among us. And so with great passion and joy, we say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, amen. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, as we see, Jesus was a man who had the habit of worship. And we know that if we want to be close to you, and we want to be shaped by you, we need to gather and worship. And we know that it's only in corporate worship that well, your presence is made known as we come to this table and your presence is made known as we gather around your word together as one body in your name. For you, Jesus, tell us when two or three are gathered together, you are there. So God, we thank you for your presence now. You are the audience, we are the performers and we wanna give all praise and glory and honor to you and gratitude for all that you've done for us. For you have been so faithful. Lord, help us in 2020 to be faithful in our worship of you. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ. And all God's people said, amen.